This is some real trouble afoot in the church, and we're going to read it and talk about real stuff this morning. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Hear now God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Lord, I wish there was a way to get verse 7 without walking through verses 1 through 6. Get us to the fruit without dealing with problems within. But in your gracious kindness, you will humble us and you will keep humbling us and we will learn to do this together or we'll not do it at all. And that's for your great glory and for your precious kingdom. And so we ask these hard things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it feels like in this series, after a couple of warm-up chapters in Acts, we just can't get anywhere without falling into new problems, pitfalls, persecutions, trouble without trouble within. It's like church is a constant run-in with difficulties. When Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the great commission, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you just got this warm, fuzzy feeling about a gospel for the nations, right? Everybody from all nations coming together to worship, it's all red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And you just feel good about that commission until we realize we got to get in the same room together. And we got to worship together. And we got to share stuff with each other and power and decision making with each other. And then things get pretty hairy pretty quick. The prejudices we learned in the world in the flesh did not magically disappear when we became born again and entered the church, right? They didn't disappear. They just got hidden beneath a broad Christian smile. Everybody is welcome. Everybody can come, grab a seat, and do things my way. Shall we? That's how we operate within the church. And so the earliest church is facing that difficulty right out of the gate. And if race and culture weren't enough trouble of their own, we hit another biggie in the same moment, mercy versus mission. Are we just reaching people's souls only or are we called to reach them 
body and soul with the good news of the kingdom. Either one of these problems, either one of them on their own could threaten to sink the entire church, but together they are formidable and we are going to need a miracle to walk through this together. So I just want to briefly name the problem and then see the solution, both of these problems as they come to the church. Problem number one, the majority group and the minority group, they aren't playing nice. They're not playing nice in the church together. We got a problem. We get introduced to these two groups in verse one. You might have never heard of these groups, but you've got the Hellenists on one side and you've got the Hebrews on the other side. So both of these groups are Jews. This is not a racial difference between them. Both of them are Jews, but the Hellenists, they're the minority and they grew up speaking Greek and they grew up in a Greek culture and so they think about things very differently and they speak very differently. And the Hebrews, on the other hand, they grew up within a Hebrew worldview and they spoke Aramaic, which is closely related to Hebrew. And so we're not talking about a a racial or a theological difference. We're talking about a cultural and a linguistic one. When you talk about diversity in the church, it's really like a pool with a really deep end and a really shallow end. And we're starting in the shallow end. Like when the church first began, It was a very monolithic, homogenous community. Everybody who came to faith in those earliest days, they were all Jews, all born in Israel, all spoke Aramaic. They looked the same, talked the same, acted the same. They played in the kiddie pool of church diversity. And then we are now knee deep as we enter urban Jerusalem And all of a sudden, the church still looks the same, but she's talking differently. There's different languages here and different thought processes and worldviews here, and she is knee-deep in diversity. I mean, just wait until we get to conversions of Samaritans or the Ethiopian eunuch or Gentiles in far-flung cities who worship Zeus and Artemis, and then we will be treading water in the deepest end of the diversity pool that there is. This is tough. But in God's kindness, he starts slow. Let's start in the kiddie pool and figure this out before people start to drown in the church, okay? So there's actually good news and bad news here in the church, even with this problem. The good news is there are actually Hebrew and Hellenist believers in this church. I mean, that's fantastic. Because any Great Commission church worth its saltiness will reach the people in her neighborhood. So if I live in a neighborhood with Hebrews, woe to me if I don't preach to Hebrews. And if my neighborhood is made up of Hellenists, Woe to me if I don't preach to Hellenists. The gospel is for every man, woman, and child in my neighborhood, my community, my campus, my city, my workplace. I am compelled to preach the gospel to whomever God brings to me. And that's happening. And that's why this issue has arisen. But here's the bad news in verse 1. Because after we've been doing that for a little bit, a complaint by the Hellenists, that minority group, arose against the Hebrews, the majority group, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So right out of the gate, the church is daily providing food for widows, 
and these two groups are kind of looking at what your widows get and what my widows get, and it doesn't look like it's even. It doesn't look like we're getting the same kind of stuff from the church's treasury. Now, I heard one of our church planners, J.P. Sibley, preach on this passage and point out two words that occur in this passage that reflect oftentimes the sentiments of the minority group and the majority group. So the minority community feels and is experiencing that word neglect. They are saying there is mistreatment here. There is inequality here. There is injustice here. But the majority community, they might be perceiving that this is a needless complaint. That word complaint is there. They might be thinking this is baseless, it's skewed, it's unverifiable, there's nothing here to complain about, and all of a sudden we're pitted against each other. Now church, watch out. You don't get a hold of something like this. You don't talk about stuff like this. You don't address this head on in the spirit. And you've got a real situation on your hands in which widows are hitting street corners, shouting, Hellenist lives matter, and burning stuff. And you've got Hebrews saying, now wait a minute, I read an article on Facebook that says inequality doesn't exist, and they start breaking stuff. And all of a sudden, the world is leading the conversation, and the church is scrambling to catch up with the categories we've been given, and we're not starting right here in the spirit with the gospel. So we got a chance, before we hurt somebody, to pause in the spirit and say, what do we do? I mean, first and foremost, in our minds connected to this might be race, but it's also socioeconomic. Can you get rich people and poor people to worship together and invite each other to the same house? It could be generational. Can you get seasoned saints and young saints together to to do worship together, to agree on worship style and clothing and how we're going to do this? These are all the fault lines in the church that can break wide open and swallow us whole if we don't humble ourselves. Well, here's an idea that I don't think they considered. Why don't we just split the church in Acts chapter 6? I mean, let's get First Baptist of the Hebrews over here and First Presbyterian of the Hellenists over there. You take your widows, we'll take our widows, we'll take care of ours, you take care of yours. And there's no room for complaint anymore because we are focused on our own. I know that sounds crazy, but I actually studied that in seminary. There's something called the homogenous unit principle, and it argues that churches will grow faster if they don't have to put up with anybody who is different than them. Do you see the human logic in that? If I don't have to worship with Republicans and Democrats, or old and young, or rich and poor, or black and white, if it's just my crew who looks like me, talks like me, sounds like me, thinks like me, complains like me, we will pack a lot of bodies in this space. We will grow numerically as quickly as we suffer and wilt spiritually. Because God says this whole thing is headed somewhere to this glorious day in which regardless of the ways we resisted it now, we will be side by side, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, 
in his kingdom, worshiping him wholly with abandon. So we can practice now and be ready for that day, or we can resist now and we'll start so far behind in that worship service. So the church says, yeah, we reject that idea outright. That's terrible. We're going to come up with a solution that I wouldn't have dreamed of in a million years. And honestly, even as I studied this passage all week, I'm still not sure what they did is a great idea, but it's in God's inerrant word, so I'm going to give it to you. They make a solution, and they don't come to it lightly. There's a lot of care. Verse 2, the apostles say, hey, we're not just going to decide on this and tell you all what to do. We're going to get the whole church together, and we're going to say, what if we together identify seven leaders that are going to carry this mercy ministry on? And in verse 5, they choose the seven. And in verse 6, the apostles pray and commission them. And then they say, okay, you guys are now in charge of the daily distribution. We hand over the mercy ministry. All that money, that quarter of the pie chart, that goes to you guys and you handle it. Now, here's the crazy part. You ready for this? I mean, this is crazy. The seven leaders tasked with running the mercy ministry all seem to be Hellenists, the minority group, all of them. Every single one of them has a Greek name. And if you lived in that world and heard those names, that would immediately stand out to you like, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, what if I told you that our church had a meeting and we're going to start doing some things differently and we, we commissioned a group of people to lead us in that and you say, great, I love that. What, who are the names? And I say, well, we got Jose and Jesus and Miguel and they're going to lead us and it's going to be fantastic. It's like, really? What about Frank and Jimmy and Bob? You know, those are good people. They're not, they're not on the crew. No, they're not on the crew. Every single one of them has a Greek name. Now, if they had asked, I would have said, well, what about a split? You know, you got an odd number, and if Hebrews make up most of the church, let's put four Hebrews on the committee, and if three Hellenists then represent the minority group, that way we have a balance, so at least those giving the most have the majority vote, at least we can be generous, but we can do it with strings attached, and the church two millennia removed responds, hang on a second, there's something here more important than maintaining power. Maybe those with the most money don't need to also have the biggest say. Like maybe instead of operating out of rivalry and suspicion and prejudice and power, we might actually count others more significant than ourselves, Philippians 2. Like we could have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. How odd if a church says that she worships a God who gave up all wealth and power then turns around spending her days grasping at wealth and power within the church. That's confusing to the world. 
That's confusing to outsiders looking in. They don't understand the disconnect between a savior who comes to serve and a church that now exists to be served. And because this happens, all of a sudden the church in Acts 6 sure looks a lot like the Jesus of Philippians chapter 2. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's incredible. First problem, spirit-filled solution. She sees it resolved. But actually, there's a second problem that's intertwined here because the church inadvertently, even with this cultural difference, has run smack into this obstinate brick wall that she has been running into repeatedly for the next 2,000 years all the way up to today, and that wall is called Limits. She is running into her own limits. She is realizing there is not enough time, energy, money, resources to do everything. She can't be everything to everyone. She can't serve in every way. She can't answer every question. Something must give. Because up until this moment, the church sure had this sense that her ministry consisted of two parts. There was a mission arm and a mercy arm. She got the mission arm from the Great Commission. We're going to go and preach the gospel. We want to save souls. She got the, the mercy from the Great Commandments that they're going to love God by loving their neighbors as themselves. And so right away, we already saw that people were selling their property to give to the poor. Now we learn that from their earliest days, the church had an organized, critical, daily, life-saving food distribution to the poorest in her midst. That's incredible. But when everything hits the fan, the apostles realize, you know, we could do this early on in our earliest days, but, but we can't do this anymore in and of our own strength. Something has got to give. So here's a false solution. Why don't you pick one? Why don't you just be a good a church that's good at one thing and not a church that's good at both things, right? Like, what if we were the mission, Great Commission Church, and we're all about souls, we're all about evangelism, we're all about saving people, a soul is eternal, a body is temporary. Why don't we just get a reputation for a Great Commission Church and let the church down the street be the Mercy Church? Let them think about bodies. Let them think about care. Let them talk about the poor and what they should do. In fact, it's easier today to be a a mercy church because everybody respects mercy, caring for the poor. A little less Jesus, a little more soup kitchen. And let that church do the, the mercy arm of what God is calling us to do. But even then, the church won't let go of either of these things. They don't consider for a moment that you can be the faithful to God's call without doing this mission of evangelism and this mercy to those in need. And so they press in to do both of them. But the magic, of course, is that no one person, no one group of people could possibly distribute the benefits that God has for the world through the church on their own. If they're gonna do this, they need help. And so the church ordains an office for the mercy arm of the church, even as the apostles lead the mission arm of the church. There's great debate in Acts chapter 6 whether these are the first deacons. You notice that the word deacon is not used here, and so some people say that's not the official office. But surely the seeds of both offices in the church are in this passage. 
God has given his church two offices. There will be elders, there will be deacons. They are mirrored in this very passage because of all the things the church could be doing. God says, I'll give you these two offices so you don't lose the two key things. Go and preach the gospel, elders. Be ministers of the word and prayer. And go and meet physical needs for the poor, deacon, as you love and serve in the way I have done. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that incredible? Those officers aren't meant to do that work for the church. Ephesians 4 says they're supposed to get behind the church so that all of us can be active in both of those things, preaching the gospel, loving people's condition, body and soul together. They are loved by God, pursued by God, provided for by God, and they hear that from the church. And how the passage ends what emerges out of this is something that wasn't possible in the flesh. Now you've got Hebrews and Hellenists. Now you've got mission and mercy together in one place, not divided. And verse seven is like God's benediction on this place. And the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Take that homogenous unit principle. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a miracle. Let's pray together. Lord, what you have done in this earliest church, I pray that you would do to us. I pray that you will humble us, Lord. Humble us, Lord Jesus, to come here not to be served, but to serve, to lay down our lives, even as you have done for us, so that we might love people body and soul. We might pursue them with the great news of your gospel kingdom, that they are invited into a family together to know and worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.